You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, you can be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name is Ben. I am one of the pastors here at King's Church. I was recently reading an online article by The Atlantic called The 50 Greatest Breakthroughs Since the Wheel. The article is basically a compilation of a bunch of uh, tech historians and entrepreneurs and scientists on their thoughts on what were the greatest innovations or inventions that's changed the world since the wheel. So a, a couple thousand years back, obviously, after fire. And I think it's a pretty good list. Uh, some of my favorites, I'd imagine, are yours as well. Number 15, the airplane. Number 29, photography. Number two, electricity. Number 44, of course, you can't live without it, the air conditioner. And number four, semiconductor electronics. Maybe think computer chips. At number nine, our favorite, the internet. And then finally, if you didn't guess it, number one, the printing press. Now, all of these were breakthrough moments in history. Each of these things changed the world in pretty drastic ways. They changed civilization. Like, where would we be today without airplanes? Where would we be today without electricity? Where would we be today without air conditioners? I praise the Lord for these innovations. Well, today we're going to look at the breakthrough moment in the life of the early church. We're looking at the moment when God's people start experiencing the implications of the resurrection of Jesus and a new covenant. We're looking at the moment when the dots finally start to connect for God's people. And of course, that moment is when the doors of the kingdom of God are swung wide open for any person, no matter their record, no matter their background, their culture, their race, or their status, to have a new relationship with God and a renewed community through the church. It's the moment where it becomes plain that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that God has a new covenant with the world. One where you don't have to give up your culture or conform to another culture in order to be right with God. That you can be a Roman, that you can be an African, that you can be a European, and that you can stay that way. And at the same time, you can be a renewed version of those things. You can be a born-again version of whatever it is that you are. This is a big moment in the life of the church And what it really teaches us is the main idea of my message as well as the main idea of this passage, and it's this, that the gospel is for all, meaning the good news of God is for every person, no matter your background, your record, your status, your race, whatever it might be, God desires to know you and for you to experience a renewed community in the life of his church. Now, my outline is pretty simple, and it will be up on the screen. Basically, this passage has six distinct scenes 
that really mark out this historic moment for us in the life of the church. And we'll get a front row seat to each moment, and then in the second part of this message, I'll really ask us and ask myself and ask this text, what does this mean for us today? So scene one, we'll look at an introduction. We'll see that in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. Scene two, we'll see a vision. Scene three, action. Scene four, a declaration. Scene five, a confirmation. Scene six, a resolution. And then, of course, at the end of this message, we'll ask ourselves, what does this all mean? Now, before we get to this first scene, a little bit of a backdrop for those of you who may uh, be joining us here for the first time today, or maybe those of you who've been kind of in and out during the summer and the last couple months, we have been studying the book of Acts. And here we are today in Acts chapter 10. It's been about 10 years since Jesus Christ came and died and was raised to life and ascended. And now the new covenant or the new testament was here. God's people, the the Jews, had waited a long time for this moment. Yet it came in a way where many of them pushed back on it and misunderstood it. Jesus the Messiah wasn't a political or a military leader. Rather, he came in weakness, and he died for sin, and he was resurrected in power. And on top of that, instead of bringing a physical kingdom to overthrow the Romans— Jesus brings a spiritual kingdom, and as he ascends to heaven, he makes this promise that one day he will make all things new. Now, these events, the gospel, was like a massive earthquake rocking humanity, and Acts, the book we're studying, is basically a book that tells us about the aftershocks, the implications. Said another way, the gospel the coming of Jesus, the the dying of Jesus for our sins, the resurrection of Jesus for our justification before God. This gospel is like a giant earthquake in the ocean, and the book of Acts is showing us the waves, the implications. And so far, those waves are things like the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, coming in power, fulfilling the promises of the new covenant. Some of these waves are things like the explosive growth of the early church, rapid growth in the first century after the coming and resurrection of Jesus. And on a hard note, another one of these waves is a thing like the deep resistance that was forming against God and his people that resulted in violence and often exclusion for early followers of Jesus. And this morning we find ourselves looking at one of the tallest waves, one of the largest waves, and it's about to make landfall. And that wave will finally be the thing that breaches an ancient wall in God's economy, the wall between Jew and Gentile, or said another way, those who are not Jewish, everybody else. Now, with the risk of oversimplifying some things, back then, in order to have a relationship with God, you had to be faithfully Jewish. If you wanted to know God, you had to become culturally and spiritually Jewish. God had given the Jewish nation specific laws, specific practices that ultimately pointed to his holiness, his perfection, his distinctiveness. And these laws generally surrounded the temple. They were about the temple, the sacrificial system, atonement, forgiveness, 
reconciliation, and things like that. But these laws also had to do with things like our diet, the things we could eat, the things we could drink, uh, the things we could touch, the things we couldn't touch, uh, sex, business, the marketplace, and all sorts of other things. Uh, To be right with God, you essentially had to practice these things and look to God in faith and hope that he would forgive you. Now, as you can imagine, these distinct laws, these distinct practices that people put themselves under made the way of life for the Jews very different from everybody else. Uh, Jews were essentially told back then you didn't want to associate with non-Jews because they would defile you. They were different from you. Uh, They would cause you to become unclean. But when Jesus comes on the scene, the Gospel of Luke reminds us that this is the moment the Old Testament was hoping for. This is the moment when the world would see the salvation of God, that all people, Luke chapter 3, verse 6, that all people will see the salvation of God. Yet up into, yet up into that point, everyone who had believed in the Messiah was essentially Jewish. Essentially, Christianity for the first 10 years was a movement, a renewal movement within Judaism. Now, there was still this giant barrier up between the Jews and the Gentiles. But then a few weeks ago, we started seeing these little waves start to clash against that little barrier. We saw a group of Samaritans trust in Jesus Christ, a different race. And then just a few weeks ago, we saw an Ethiopian man believe in Jesus and become a Christian. These little waves beginning to break this barrier between Jew and Gentile. But that was nothing like what we're about to see here in Acts chapter 10. So let's look at this first scene, our introduction. Verse 1 of chapter 10. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, that's about 3 p.m., he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, He called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So we're introduced to several characters here in our first scene. First, we're introduced to Cornelius. He's a Gentile. He's a non-Jew. He's a Roman centurion, which means he was in charge of about 200 to 500 men. That's equivalent to, say, a lieutenant colonel or a colonel today. And notice he is a God-fearer. Notice that doesn't mean he has a relationship with God, but his family and he are very devout. They pray, they give, they have belief that God is real. They're pretty good people. This is similar to a lot of people today. They're pretty good people. Cornelius is a pretty good guy, and he's got a pretty good family. Second, we notice this angel of God. 
this angel appears to Cornelius in some type of vision. Cornelius is totally freaked out by this vision, and this angel essentially tells Cornelius, hey, God sees you. He hasn't forgotten about you. And that he wants Cornelius to go get this guy, Peter, who he really doesn't know for some reason or other. Third, we meet Simon Peter and Simon the Tanner. Simon Peter, of course, is the Apostle Peter, who's one of the primary leaders in the early church, and he's staying with Simon the Tanner, who's this guy who makes animal pelts somewhere on the Mediterranean Sea. And finally, we meet Cornelius's two aides and a devout or religious soldier. Uh, Cornelius would have had a bigger staff, and so he sends two of his aides or his servants and a religious soldier to go retrieve the apostle Peter. And the, the passage now continues. We move to the second scene, Peter's vision. Verse 9, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, it's about noon, to pray. And he became hungry, probably because it's lunchtime. And he wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So as these two aides and this religious soldier head over to get Peter, Peter has this vision himself. And in this vision, it's a massive sheet that drops slowly from heaven, and it's filled with all kinds of animals inside. And the voice says, kill and eat. If you're a vegan, this is a nightmare for you. And it was for Peter as well, because he is a good Jew. And as a good Jew, he would have still been following these distinct laws that pointed to God's holiness. Laws that told him what he could touch, what he could kill, what he could eat, or what he could not eat. But now all of a sudden, God's telling him to touch and to kill and to eat things that were against these distinct laws. It doesn't make any sense to Peter. And God says, what he has made clean, do not call common. And then this sheet goes up and the vision ends, which really leads us to our third scene, action. Verse 17, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. Verse 19, and while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So we invited them in to be his guests. So as Peter is processing, we might say, this vision, the spirit nudges his heart and tells him to go connect with these guys at the door. 
Peter does. They tell him how their boss saw an angel and to come to his house. And of course, Peter is like, ah, yeah, come on in. Now, this reminds me of a principle that Wesley shared last week. God is looking for our availability, not our ability. Notice Peter is not too shocked that this is happening. It's just another day on the job following the Lord. He's available, and God is using him in a big way, orchestrating this whole thing. The passage continues, verse 23, The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers, that's Christians, from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Verse 30. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter comes in, there's this huge crowd. It's all of Cornelius' friends and family and maybe some of his colleagues. And as Peter and Cornelius start sharing their experiences, they both realize that God has orchestrated this moment and that there's very something very special about to happen in this moment. And it clicks for Peter, and here in scene four, he makes a declaration. Verse 34, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him, meaning anyone is able to receive salvation. Anyone is eligible for salvation. The door is wide open. Verse 36, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter essentially preaches the gospel here, the message of Christianity. He retells the coming of John the Baptist, who announced that the Messiah was Jesus and that he had finally arrived. He talks about how Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and power and went around doing good 
and healing people because God was with him. He shares how Jesus died on a cross, but how God raised him from the dead and how he appeared to people. He describes that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And he says Jesus is the one who the whole Bible points to. Jesus is the one who all the scriptures are about and that anyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness and reconciliation to God in his name. And as Peter is saying these things, as he's preaching the gospel, we roll into scene five, confirmation, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that is Jewish Christians like Peter, who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then he asked them, and then he asked him to remain for some days. So this is the moment. This is when this massive wave slams into the ground. Peter is preaching the gospel. They believe And he sees this visible sign that the Gentiles are now part of the new covenant. They receive the Spirit, and they speak in tongues as they praise God. Now, interestingly, most of the time when people become Christians in the book of Acts, they don't speak in tongues. But this is one of two or three occasions where the the gift starts popping out to visibly show that God was doing something really shocking and really special. It was a breakthrough moment. And that breakthrough moment was that God was now showing them how through Jesus and the new covenant, the New Testament, there was no need to first become culturally and religiously Jewish in order to be right with God. What they needed to be right with God was faith in the Messiah, trust in Jesus Christ. That's because the temple, the sacrificial system, the distinct laws about what you could eat and what you could touch, about what you could wear, about uh, what you could kill, what you could eat. All of those things were about Jesus. And when Jesus came, he was perfectly holy. He was perfectly distinct. He's like no other, and he never sins. He's filled with generosity. He's filled with love. He's filled with humor. He's filled with joy. He's the picture of what the law is all really all about loving God, and loving our neighbor. And through faith in him alone, God makes us holy. God makes us distinct. And when he comes, he's the final sacrifice. The blood of animals could never take away sins. It was a picture. It was an object lesson that pointed to something more real, that God himself would die for us to make peace. And God's mercy, which is so deep, cleanses all who would call on the name of Jesus once and for all. Essentially, God is showing us here that the doors of the kingdom of God were wide open for any person, no matter their background, their status, their race, their culture, their record, to have a new relationship with God and a renewed community in the life 
of the church. It didn't matter if they were Roman. It didn't matter if they were African. It didn't matter if they were European. They could stay that way and yet at the same time be a renewed version of those things, a born-again version of whatever it was that they were. This is a breakthrough moment, and nothing like this had ever happened at that point, which really leads us to scene six, resolution, verse one, chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, that is Jewish Christians, criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. In verses 5 through 16, he essentially summarizes everything that happened. And then in verse 17, he concludes saying, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to to life. So he retells what happened likely to a large assembly of Jewish Christians, and the result is that they're shocked that they glorify God in this breakthrough moment. Now, the big question we should have this morning is, what does this all mean for my life? What does this mean for us as a church? What does this mean for my life as a Christian? Churches are often tempted to skip over passages like this, but there is something so beautiful that we see in these passages that teach us about God. And this morning I have three of those, three takeaways for what Acts chapter 10 and the first part of Acts chapter 11 can teach us, what it speaks to us about. Number one, Christianity and the Bible are consistent. Christianity and the Bible are consistent. I remember back in college, oftentimes my professors would mock Christians for being what they would call inconsistent. I have memories of sitting in media classes and writing classes where Christianity would come up. And I remember instances where people in my class would start defending their beliefs in God or defending their faith in Jesus about particularly ethical issues or moral issues, and the professor would respond with something like, if you believe that, or if you believe this, you know the Bible says you can't wear polyester. Uh, You can't eat shellfish. If you believe this or that, why are you eating shellfish? Uh, Why do you pick and choose what you want to follow, why are you arbitrary? Why are you inconsistent? What they were basically saying was, you're inconsistent. You're choosing what to follow in the Bible and what not to follow. Now, back then, I knew it really didn't make sense to follow the book of Leviticus. But the charge of inconsistency really bugged me. It made me really easy because it sounded somewhat accurate. It sounded like What they were saying is you read your Bible and you choose what to believe and what not to believe, and you throw out a large portion of Scripture. But Acts 10, this passage, is a really good place to help us to understand the consistency of the Bible and the Christian faith. First, Acts 10 reminds us that 
because of Jesus Christ, the ceremonial laws of the Bible have been done away with. When Jesus comes on the scene, he declares all foods clean, Mark chapter 7. Uh, He often, as you read in the Gospels, he often ignores the Levitical laws of the Old Testament. He touches lepers. He touches dead bodies. And when he died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn into two, showing that that sacrificial system, with all of its clean and unclean rules and laws, had been done away with. In other other words, it would be deeply inconsistent with the Bible if we followed those ceremonial laws today. 2 Acts chapter 10 reminds us that because of Christ, the church is not a nation state imposing civil penalties. In other words, we don't follow the, the civil laws of the book of Leviticus or the book of the Old Testament because Acts and the rest of the, the New Testament shows us that the people of God are assembled in churches scattered throughout the world under different governments. Because of Christ, the gospel Uh, The people of God are not confined to one single nation state. Rather, we're released into all different cultures. The good news, faith in God, reconciliation with God is spread out throughout the world, which means the church is not a civil government and sins are not dealt with the same way they were in the Old Testament. In other words, it would be also deeply inconsistent with the Bible if we actually followed those civil laws today. Now, this is a big topic, but my point is that Acts 10 and what it points to can help us to see that the way we're living out our faith, uh, the way we're reading the Bible, the way we're living out our faith isn't inconsistent at all, because if Christ is who he says he is, then to say, I think the Bible teaches a specific, say, sex ethic, I'll follow that, but I'm not going to follow the shellfish laws, if Christ is who he says he is, then that is the most consistent thing you can say. So it shows us, Acts 10, one thing it might point to is that Christianity and the Bible are consistent. Number two, Acts 10 points to the fact that Christianity is the most universal and inclusive faith. Now, I've mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again. The book of Acts, and specifically this account of Cornelius and the Gentiles is showing us that Christianity, the way to God, doesn't belong to one culture more than another. The early Christians were shocked by this reality. They were all Jewish, and they just simply assumed Christianity belongs to Jewish culture. It would mainly be contained in Jerusalem. But all of a sudden, as we saw just a few weeks ago, they saw the Samaritans, They saw this Ethiopian embrace the gospel, different races, different classes. And today, this Roman soldier and a bunch of Roman Gentiles embrace the gospel, and none of them becomes Jewish. This was unthinkable. Different cultures, different races, different classes, all becoming believers in God and being reconciled together through the blood of Jesus to the point where today, just like as Jesus designed, Christianity doesn't belong to one culture more than another. Now, this truth, as I've mentioned before, is in direct contradiction to how most people understand culture and religion. In most universities today, people have a different idea of how religion and culture 
relate. They essentially say that religion is the invention of culture. The thought is that every culture needs to be united. Every culture needs to have cohesion. And so cultures develop these big meta stories, these big stories that keep their cultures together. And eventually these stories become religion. And the idea goes that every culture has its own religion. Basically, the Europeans and the Americans develop Christianity. South Asian cultures develop Hinduism. Far Eastern cultures develop Buddhism. And Middle Eastern or North African cultures developed Islam. And that's basically the thought goes. That's all religion really is. It's a child of culture. But I mentioned a few weeks ago how one researcher pointed out an important fact that is often missed today. He notes that the statistics show that every major religion's population centers today, except for Christianity, are still primarily concentrated where they started. For instance, 96% of all Muslims today live in the Middle East. 96%. And in the rest of the world, North America, Europe, South America, and so on, there's only 4%. 88% of Buddhists today still live in East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India or South Asia. But he points out when you get to Christianity, it's very different. It's the only true worldwide religion. Of all of the Christians in the world, 25% of Christians are in Central or South America or the Caribbean. 22% are in Africa. 15% are in Asia. That number is growing very fast. 20% are in Europe. 3% are in Australia. And 12% are in North America of all Christians. He says it's worldwide because of the very universal and very inclusive nature of the Christian gospel. First, it's universal because anyone, anywhere, no matter their culture, their record, their race, their class, their status, anyone can reach out to God and have a relationship with him and a renewed community in the church by calling on the name of Jesus Christ. You don't have to go to a place. You don't have to go to a shrine. It's sensible to all cultures. The book of Acts earlier says there is salvation and no one else and that God is not far off from each of us. Second, it's inclusive because when Christianity is truly embraced, it doesn't seek to flatten or level someone else's culture or language by unifying it to a dominant subculture or language. Essentially, it's not a Jewish message that uh, implies that you need to become Hebrew in order to become right with God. It's not a Roman message in Greek or Latin implying that you have to become like the Romans in order to be uh, right with God. It's a message of hope. It's a message that transforms the fiber of our being, every nook and cranny of who we are. That means if someone is from Africa and they become a Christian, they don't become a European Christian. They become a Christian African. And if they're from the southern United States, like some of you, when they become a Christian, they don't become a Midwesterner. They become a Christian from the south. The point I'm trying to make isn't factions. It's that the gospel doesn't seek to flatten cultures. In a sense, it allows a person to stay in a culture. It allows them to see God's common grace and enjoy the different emphases, the norms, the foods, the customs, the music, and language of their particular culture. Real Christianity doesn't flatten those things. It honors those things. It renews those things. It loves those things. And sometimes it critiques those things and transforms those things. These truths allow the Christian gospel to spread 
like wildfire in the first century and still to this day. Finally, number three, something we can take away from this beautiful passage is that Christianity offers ultimate hope and renewal for all people. Christianity offers ultimate hope and renewal for all people. When we meet Cornelius in this passage, he's a pretty good guy. He's devout. His family is devout. He fears God. He gives to charity. He's a pretty good guy, and everybody knows it. But Cornelius doesn't know God. He needs to be brought to repentance and life, Acts chapter 11, verse 14. And that's exactly what he does. He puts his faith in Jesus Christ, and God makes him new. He receives God's spirit, and he praises God as a result. This is a great reminder this morning that there are two ways that we can run from God. We can do all the right things, or we can do all the wrong things. Two ways to run from God. We do all the right things, or we do all the wrong things. Cornelius was trying to do all of the right things. He was moral. As my friends once said pretty harshly, morality may keep us out of jail, but it doesn't keep our souls out of hell. He needed a savior. He needed his heart truly cleansed. He needed to be renewed. And through Jesus, this is precisely what happened. He found new life. He found salvation with his God. He found his heart being cleansed to the uttermost through the blood of Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we turn to the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that it's still only Jesus that can save our souls. It's still only Jesus who can cleanse us to the uttermost. It's only Jesus who can make us fully alive. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.